Good point, Carl. Revelation chapter 8 tonight, we are going to attempt to get through all 13 verses as we study this, this whole chapter. Um, we are approaching the trumpet judgments, the trumpet judgments. So look with me now at Revelation chapter 8, verse number 1. I have actually, I brought my New American Standard Bible tonight, so if you're using a different translation, I do not mean to throw you off. Um, I simply walked out the door with this one, and it has my marks in it anyway, so hopefully it's not going to be confusing to you. But uh, just follow along with me as I read verse number 1 through 13 of Revelation chapter 8. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. The first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. And it fell on the third, on a third of the rivers and on the springs of waters. The name of the star is called Wormwood. And a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. The fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were struck so that a third of them would be darkened, and the day would not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. Then I looked and I and heard and I heard an, 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 an eagle, excuse me, an eagle flying in the mid heaven, saying with a loud voice, "Woe, woe, woe, to those who dwell on the earth, because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet, of the three angels." who are about to sound. This is Revelation chapter 8. The theme here is the final righteous judgment of Almighty God. Our thesis for our time together tonight would be simply this, the character, and this is very important, the character and nature of Christ demands a balanced understanding of His goodness as well as His wrath, His mercy as well as his judgment. Um, I've mentioned a book here recently that I was reading where an author attempted to essentially isolate two of Jesus, uh, two of Christ's nice attributes, 
and isolate them from the larger whole of the nature of Christ. Meaning you cannot have his goodness without understanding his wrath. You cannot have his justice without understanding his judgment. So it's very important for us to have a balanced understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And what we see here in Revelation chapter 8 is the very righteous judgment of Almighty God upon the wicked during the tribulation period. These are the judgments of God revealed in the book of Revelation. There are essentially three classes of judgments, okay? And they do not duplicate back over one another as some preterists would like to affirm. They, they're not a cycle of judgments, meaning, meaning that they just return over the same things, when, when instead it's, it's more linear. There's a, a linear progression of these judgments. And the first, as we've seen already, is the, were the sealed judgments. There were seven seals. And we saw and studied the six original, the six beginning seals. And now the seventh seal is open. Look at verse number one of chapter eight. The lamb broke the seventh seal. The lamb is capital L, that is Jesus Christ, the one who is seated upon the throne. He breaks the seventh seal. Within that seventh seal contains the seven trumpet judgments. So we are moving ahead through tribulation judgment. We're not duplicating. We're not going back around. We're not making circles. We are moving forward. The sixth seal contains the seven trumpets. I want you to make sure that you grab that. Then whenever we get to the seventh trumpet, which is in the end of chapter nine, we're going to see that there are seven bold judgments. And this is also progressing with intensity. The sealed judgments were intense. We found the four horses of the apocalypse, as many people like to refer to them as. And we also see that at that sixth and seventh seal, now things are becoming more and more amplified. The trumpet judgments are even more intensified. And we find that at the bold judgments, they will be an even more intense outpouring of God's wrath upon the earth. But what we see here in the beginning of chapter 8, verse 1, is... Um, somebody want to make sure that they're not I, I, I'm so thankful for Sid but she's not capable um, so um, silence in heaven when the lamb broke the seventh seal there was silence in heaven I want us to see the profundity in this because since the creation of the world there has not been silence in heaven until this point and this silence in heaven is a half an hour long. It's a half an hour uh, period of time, about a half an hour. John's not watching his watch and counting down the minutes. It's simply a time period where there is nothing but silence in heaven. It's quite an eerie thing to think about. Um, the Greek word here for silence simply means to hush. It means if a man were to withhold his peace, he was just to remain quiet. He knows that he can say something, but he doesn't for the sake of something more important. Um, this is unlike anything that the world has ever seen since the dawning of time. Even during the announcement of the birth of Jesus Christ, if you recall in Luke chapter 2, there was the announcement of Christ's birth to the shepherds. And the shepherds see the angel speaking to them at night. And then as they looked into the heavens uh, in Luke chapter 2 verse 8, um, the heavens were filled with a multitude of angels. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out of the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And then an angel of the Lord appeared unto them suddenly before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were terribly frightened. 
And the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for I behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. For today in the city of David, there was born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And here's the verse I want you to hear. And suddenly there appeared, essentially God was allowing the fabrics of heaven to reveal the sight of the angelic host in heaven. And suddenly there appeared with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Heaven is, is filled with the praise of these angelic beings and saints around the throne, as we've seen already up to this point in the book of Revelation. And by the time we get to the time at this time in, in the tribulation period, there's all of a sudden going to be a hush in heaven. What an eerie thing that is. Have you ever been to a stadium where there's a moment of silence? And, and there's almost like this breathlessness there. Like everything just gets quiet and your mind is telling you we're in a stadium. This should not be like this. This is a place where people cheer. This is a place where people yell and shout and cheer their team on. It's not a place where quietness takes place. Magnify that by a hundred million times and you have what the silence of heaven would sound like. You see a sea of souls and an innumerable multitude of angels quiet. We have to ask the question, what does this mean? This, as many commentators speculate about what this silence means, I simply think that it means a silence of anticipation. This is an anticipatory silence that's brought on by fear and severity and awe. This is, as I bring us into this chapter, I want us to feel the magnitude of what's taking place that John is writing about, because as this quietness in heaven takes over the throne room of heaven. There's this holy reverential awe at the grim reality of finally God's judgment is going to be poured out. Finally, God is going to have no more restraining grace. He is going to open his wrath upon the earth. There's this silence. There's just this pause there's this awe of what's about to take place. Think about Ezekiel 18, 23. Maybe this will help you wrap, wrap your mind around this silence in heaven. In Ezekiel 18, 23, God says, Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Declares the Lord. Rather than that, he should turn from his ways and live. This is the character and nature of God. God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. He desires for them to turn from their wicked ways and live. But at this point, it's all stopped. It's over. There is no more. There's no more opportunity. There's no more grace. It's just the outpouring of God's wrath upon the earth during this tribulation period. I think that would make, I think that would make heaven silent. I think that would be this anticipatory, it's finally here. The nations that have tried to shun off God the people that have rebelled against God and shaken their fists towards heaven, they are finally going to realize that God does exist. And those that are in heaven are going to simply be in silent awe. Not awe as in a happy awe, but this is now the... the we don't want... Think, let's face it. We have all read and um, witnessed 
wicked rulers, right? I don't think any believer could actually go as far as to say that we want to see them die. Rather, as a believer, we want to see them converted. But even the sheer thought of contemplating the death of the wicked would make you just simply quiet. And to think, I would rather them come to Christ as that is the heart of God. I would rather them come to Christ, turn from their wicked ways and follow him. But they will not. They hate God. So there's a weighty silence that takes place in heaven in verse number one. And it's for about the span of half an hour. And then John says, I saw seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Now much ink has been spilt on who these angels are. Let's not add something to the text that is not there, okay? I think it's very dangerous whenever, as so many do, try to impose things upon the word of God that that is not there, simply not there. And what we find here are simply seven angels. These are seven angelic beings that have been created to praise God. They are militant, meaning that they are standing in a line before God as his final messengers, as as these angels have been designated to pour out or mark the outpouring of God's wrath. These angels are anonymous. Maybe Gabriel. Some have speculated that maybe Gabriel's in this, in this midst. As, a, as he says in Luke chapter 1 verse 19, he says, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. So there are many who think that this one of these angels at least could be Gabriel. But they are given trumpets at the end of verse 2. Trumpets is a clear reference to an Old Testament source of judgment. Um, If you recall in Exodus chapter 19, verse 16, on the third day when it was morning, that there were thunders and lightnings flashing and a thick cloud upon Mount Sinai. If you recall that circumstance where Moses and the Israelites were encamped around Mount Sinai, there was a cloud and thunders and lightnings and a roar with a trumpet blast at the top of Mount Sinai. Trumpets were used to call the Israelites together for instruction. Trumpets were used to summon them to war. Trumpets were used to sound uh, the return from the dispersion. Trumpets were used to sound the end of a year of Jubilee. Can anybody for a million trivia points tell me how long the, the, the Jubilee time was? Seven years. What was it? Seven that was a sabbatical year, a, a Sabbath year of seven years. The, the year of Jubilee marked a... 50-year period. The year of Jubilee was every 50 years. Um, So a trumpet marked the Jubilee year where people were freed from their debts and freed as slaves and all sorts of interesting things. A trumpet will sound the rapture of the church. And here in Revelation chapter 8, it is a trumpet that sounds and announces the beginning of God's judgment upon the earth. What we find here in Revelation chapter 8 are four of the seven trumpets. Now, this is important for me to point out to you as we look to each one of these, because the first four judgments, or excuse me, the first four trumpets mark uh, changes in the earth's ecology, meaning uh, natural things are changed and affected by these seven, these four judgments. The latter three that we will read about next week, those are demonic activity that God permits upon the earth. So you can see the amplification of this judgment. We see God is literally destroying the natural resources of the earth in these first four trumpet judgments. And next week, we're going to see the next three, the last three of the seven trumpet judgments, and they're going to be demonic in nature where there are uh, demons are allowed to be loosed from hell itself and destroy man. Um, 
But I want us to see, as I mentioned in the onset of our study tonight, notice verse 3, another angel, a nameless angel. It's an anonymous angel. Many people have speculated about who this is. Some would even go as far as to say that it is Jesus Christ acting in his high priestly activity in heaven, but I do not think that it is. This other angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him so that he might add to it Notice this twice. Add to it the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne. In verse four, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. Pause there. Remember how I, I mentioned to you, and I mentioned this to you often, notice for, look for things that repeat in the passage of scripture that you're studying. Look for words that are rep, used repetitiously, and it will help you follow the writer's ideas and, and thoughts as you seek to get a right interpretation of the text. Notice the things that are repeated. If, you, if you're paying attention closely here, John records the prayers of all the saints, the prayers of all the saints. He records it twice. So I think there's some significance there. What does this mean? I want us to explore the importance of this, and I hope to encourage you tonight to to be more devoted in your prayer life. I think that each one of us in this room, I've never seen a tombstone that said, I prayed just enough. I've never heard anybody say, yeah, I pray plenty. I think there's always room to become more devoted in communication with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And I hope to tonight show you why that is important. First of all, the prayers, the word that's used here signifies a place of prayer or the direction of prayer. It is, it is the heart desire to communicate with our God. It's used 37 times in the New Testament. In the Wycliffe Bible Commentary, I read this this afternoon, we can infer from this statement here in Revelation chapter 8 that the judgments foretold in this prophecy will be the consequence in some remarkable manner, of the prayers of all the saints crying to God to accomplish speedily the number of his elect and to hasten his kingdom. So check it out. What the Wycliffe Bible commentary just said there was that somehow in this very unique ways, the very prayers of the saints have effect on the outpouring of God's wrath. Think about all the persecuted Christians that have hit their knees and calloused their knees as the result of persecution throughout the centuries. We, we, we could go as far as to say that it's millions upon millions of prayers that have been offered to God for protection, for escape from persecution, for uh, help and suffering. Notice that I'm not talking about physical ailments. I'm talking about spiritual weighty matters for the furtherance of God's kingdom. I'm talking about whenever we pray for the health and well-being and the safety of individuals, those are all very good things. But it is my desire, my deepest desire, that we would look beyond that to why. Have you ever thought about that? We, we get in this habit of we're, we're constantly praying for health and comfort and safety and recovery and healing. Those are all very good things. But if we miss the why... If we miss the further reason, if, if we fail to grasp why a sovereign God is allowing these things to happen in our lives as a result of his providence, then we're missing the whole factor. Let's face it, God knows who has COVID. And God knows uh, where his people are. The, the thing that 
God is challenging his people to do is, and by the way, prayer is mentioned all throughout the New Testament. And we're going to explore this more in depth here in a minute. But if we miss the why, we miss a great aspect of our Christian life. We could be wrestling with these things physically in this temporal existence. We could be wrestling with them until we get put in the ground. But if, until, we, until we grasp that God is in control and we want his will, we've missed the point of prayer. We've missed the point of, of being on our knees before our Heavenly Father and trusting him no matter what. No matter what. Number one, I want to give you many reasons as to why I want you to see, by the way, where did these prayers go? So the prayers of all the saints are mentioned. I want you to see that they go right to heaven and not simply to heaven. They go right before the throne of God. Notice here, before we explore the reasons why we should pray more, they go to the golden altar as a sacrifice, as an offering. That's what the incense means. This is a... uh, This is the altar of incense referred to here. And notice in verse 3 that it is the golden altar which is before the throne. So if you're picturing this, John is describing the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, is on the throne. And before the throne is the altar of incense where the prayers of the saints are. So quite literally, when you pray for the will of God in your life, that prayer goes directly before the throne of the Lamb. I don't know what a I don't know of a greater truth in in all of our lives that when we pray trusting Christ and we seek his will and we seek that his will be done in our lives that prayer goes directly before the face of Christ isn't that amazing it is offered to him like incense, like a burning offering to him for his glory and for his honor. We are literally praying right before the king of kings. He hears us. That's amazing. Because hey, I, I know me and, you know, I, I wouldn't listen to me for more than five minutes. I don't know how you all do it, but I, Christ hears my prayers when I pray in faith to him as I bow before his will and his purpose in my life. Here's some reasons why we need to seek to have a more fervent and passionate and truth-saturated prayer life. Number one, I don't know if this may be the only reason you need to hear. Jesus prayed. Jesus was a praying man. Jesus is recorded throughout the Gospels as going into prayer all night long. Luke chapter 6. Jesus, the night before he was crucified, he was in the garden. He was praying. He even came to his disciples and said, pray while I go and pray. And the reason that he commanded them to pray was that they would not fall into temptation. So there's another reason you need to pray so you are kept from, kept from temptation, temptation to sin. Have you asked God, Lord, keep me from sinning against you and against my brothers and sisters in Christ? Number two. Jesus commanded his people to pray. I've been studying Matthew chapter 9, 35 through 38 rather extensively here for the last eight weeks, thanks to a class that I'm taking. And I'm quite blown away by the depth of God's word as as it is usually found. But in that passage in Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38, that's the passage where Jesus literally turns to his disciples and he says, the harvest is plenteous, but the workers or the laborers are few. And then he says, as he's referring to the workers, he simply says, 
you know, the workers in an ambiguous statement. He says that the workers, that could be anybody, there's nobody here to harvest this harvest of souls. And then he turns to his disciples and he says, pray. Beseech the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers or workers into his harvest. And what Jesus is doing there, if you study the the intricacies of the grammar, as my professor says, the gold is in the grammar. What you see is that Jesus is looking at the harvest and he's saying, yes, there's no workers here. And then he turns to his disciples and says, you pray that God would send you into the harvest. So Jesus is commanding prayer on behalf of his glory and for lost souls. Have you prayed for the lost Think about it. If you're praying for the souls of the lost, those prayers go directly before the throne of the Lamb. And he hears those prayers. God in his perfect providence and power, we see here that these prayers do not go unanswered. They do not go uh, just floating off into nowhere land. Christ literally hears them. Hears them. Jesus taught us to pray. He taught us in the Lord's Prayer. After this manner, you should pray. In Matthew chapter 5 on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I quite, I, I, I believe that what Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount is directly relating to this moment in the tribulation period because these are the prayers of the saints and more than likely these are prayers of persecuted Christians. So those prayers that while individual Christians are loving their enemies and they are praying for those who persecute you, these prayers do not just go simply unnoticed, but rather they are contained in a wonderful beauty in the throne room of heaven as incense, as offered uh, offerings before the king of kings. The command to pray is used 88 times in the New Testament as a direct command. It's used 88 times. Pray to keep from temptation as Jesus commanded his disciples. Number four, why should we pray more fervently Number four, because the disciples devoted themselves to prayer. After Christ had ascended to heaven, the disciples were gathered in the upper room. And Acts chapter 1 verse 14 says that they were devoting themselves to prayer. In Colossians chapter 4 verse 2, Paul says, devote yourselves to prayer. Keep alert with thanksgiving. Number five. The early church was committed to prayer. The early church was committed to prayer. Again, in the book of Acts, Luke records that there was, in the first century church, we have much to learn from them, by the way. The first century church worshipped in a pure sense. They worshipped in, in, in the straightforward simplicity of gospel worship. The worship of Christ. In the book of Acts, we find that there was really essentially four things going on in the church. There was teaching the word, there was fellowship among the saints, there was the breaking of bread, and there was prayer. Those, those four elements were the, essentially the, the pillars of the first century worship. Here's a good one. Number six, elders are commanded to be devoted to prayer and the ministry of the word. Devoted to prayer and the ministry of, a word, in the, of the word. This is what Acts chapter 6 is all about. If you recall Acts chapter 6, that was whenever the 
uh, seven deacons were chosen because the elders of the churches were getting run ragged, running throughout all the houses, serving the widows, and there was a contention that arose. So, so essentially the elders said, why should we leave the word to serve tables? And then therefore, by the way, the, the name deacon means waiter. Uh, I remember one day walking through one of those turnpike uh, turnpikes rest stops, you know, that have you can get the little nice license plate um, tags for like your bicycle, and they were like on those, and they have everybody's name and what it means, you know. And I'm like, let's see if Deacon's on there, you know. Nobody has Deacon, so I see Bill and Dan and all these easy names, and then there it is, Deacon. And I said, oh, the turnpike license plate for my bicycle with my name on it. It says waiter <laughs> my name means waiter and i'm thinking well there's nothing meaningful to that i was a little kid you know i thought mom and dad why'd you marry me this it means servant that's exactly what deacon means it means a servant a waiter a butler a nobody and i'm quite content with that actually but notice that what's a pastor supposed a pastor is an elder remember a pastor is an elder an elder is a pastor Elders, pastors are commanded in Acts chapter 6 to be devoted to two things. The primary calling of a pastor. What should a pastor do? If you were to survey 90% of the churches in the United States and you were to ask them, what are the tasks of a pastor? You would probably have a myriad of line items. You would probably hear something like, he's supposed to preach, he's supposed to teach, he's supposed to visit, he's supposed to take care of the financial affairs of the church, he's supposed to make sure that he has everybody lined up for the service of the church, he's supposed to make sure that he goes to the hospital, he's supposed to make sure that he does visitation throughout the community, making sure these different things, and the list goes on and on and on. Whereas in Acts chapter 6, and you'll find this in First and Second Timothy as well, you'll find that he is to be devoted to prayer. Devoted to prayer and the Word. If anything, if anything else is brought to this, you have it backwards. A pastor can get into so much trouble when he leaves off what he's been called to do. That's it. Now, I'm not saying that's all that there is. There's, there's shepherding the flock, I would say, in this, and that includes visiting the needy. That includes spiritual leadership. But how do you shepherd? This is a good question, and I'm, I'm thankful that we're kind of taking this little detour here because we're kind of away from Revelation chapter 8. Well, what does this mean? How do you shepherd? <coughs> a shepherd leads sheep, right? A shepherd is kind of a, uh, a nobody. Yeah, he's leading these grass burners. Uh, and, and he's leading them to where? Just over the hill? <laughs> you know? Hey, I think that we need to be over there. He is constantly, constantly, constantly... Leading them to Christ. There's one mission. How do you shepherd? You point to Christ. 
the good shepherd. How do you do that? By teaching the word and praying for your people and leading them in the things of the word. You'll have these circumstances that arise where somebody will become discouraged or a family will become troubled with different circumstances or they're warring with something spiritual or maybe they have a child that has gone wayward. What does this guy do? Does he say, well, you know what? I need to give you an eight-step program to be able to better your life. No, he points you to Jesus Christ. Here is the answer. Why have we left off the answer? We want everything but him. We, we want, no, I need a self-help tutorial devotional so that I can navigate my problems. No, this is where your problems go away. This is how you shepherd. And by the way, technically, a pastor is not called, he is called a shepherd. That's what elder means. Elder means shepherd leader. But really, he's an under-shepherd. Under-shepherd. Why? Because he's under Christ. It's Christ who's the shepherd. I like, really, i got to be honest with you. I, I, I think we see these celebrity pastors today. These guys that, I don't know how they do it, really. I don't know how, I don't know how, they, I don't know how they do it. The pastor isn't the answer. <laughs> Christ is the answer. Above all, I don't care if you forget my name, but don't forget his. I really, I want, to, I want you above all to see Christ magnified in your lives. Oh, you guys are just so stinking cute. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Here we go. That was number one, two, three, four, five, six. Number seven. I think this is very interesting, and this correlates with Revelation chapter 8. Cornelius. In the case of Cornelius, Cornelius was a leader of uh, a band of Roman soldiers in Acts chapter 10. If you recall, quite a Gentile. He was not a Jew. But he, as uh, the angel says, your prayers have ascended as a memorial. Your prayers have ascended as an offering. Your prayers have ascended as a sacrifice. And God has heard the prayers of Cornelius, a Gentile, a, a soldier, a Roman soldier. And, and I think that we can glean from that as Cornelius' prayers have entered before the very eyes and ears of the Lord Jesus Christ. Before God, we too, when we pray, they come as a memorial before God, of, a memorial of Christ's faithfulness. Uh, number eight. We are to pray in tribulation, as Paul says in Romans chapter 12. Verse number 12, we are to be rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Devoted to prayer. Did you know that, uh, and because we're running out of time, I sadly have to say that we're going to end here. Um, did you know that prayer is a part of the armor of God? Did you know that? Let's look at Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll pick up in verse number 5 of Revelation chapter 8 next week. But look at Ephesians chapter 6. We like the armor of God. We, you know, think about it often. We contemplate it often. And Paul records in Ephesians chapter 6, look at verse number 13. Paul says, therefore, 
Well, the therefore there makes us ask the question, what's it there for? And Paul's saying that you're in a spiritual warfare. You're in a struggle, not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of the darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. He says you're in a war. Therefore, you need spiritual armor. You need to, you need to go into battle. Spiritual battle. And if you go in wearing someone else's armor, you're going to be defeated. If you go in wearing no armor, you're surely going to die. But Paul says, look, I'm going to give you armor. It's the very armor of God that you can wage war against these spiritual forces of darkness. In verse 13, therefore, take up the full armor of God. Don't leave a piece. The full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in that evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. There's the first. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, which you will be able to extinguish all the fiery darts of the devil or the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit of God with all prayer and petition. Did you catch it? It's almost like a capstone. Yes, you have these pieces. You have the helmet. You have the breastplate. You have the girdle of truth. You have the feet shod with the preparation of the gospel. You have the shield of faith, the sword of the Spirit, but above all, you're putting prayer on. You're praying about this. Prayer with all prayer, verse 18, and petition. Pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on alert with all perseverance and petition for all saints. Petitioning for the saints. There it is. You're praying for other brothers and sisters in Christ. This is part of your warfare. Have you been battling with prayer? I'll ask you that question. I don't need to see an answer. I'm just saying, have you been waging war in prayer? Because a lot of these troubles and trials that we're going through in our lives, we, we instantly, we, instead of, Instead of hitting our knees, our natural tendency is to do this. And we get pitified. We, we get discouraged. And we get down. Um, down is the right place to be, only down on your knees. I was Ray Comfort, who I just read recently, said, what's the first thing that hits your floor in the morning? Is it your feet or your knees? And I thought that was pretty cool. Because oftentimes we just get up and run. We got to go, 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 go. But Paul is saying that above all, you better be waging war with prayer. I mean, I, I got to be honest. If I'm, if I'm trying to win this spiritual battle in my own strength, I will fail every time. But if I call God in on this, if you call God in, he's going to knock down the opposition with no problems. And he's going to lead you through whatever fiery testing that he has you set for. Because you're his child. And he hears your prayers. Our prayers go straight to the throne room of God. And as in Revelation chapter 8, because we have two minutes, we'll get to verse 6 now. These prayers are offered up before the throne of God. He hears them. They are sweet to him. And guess what? He answers them. Notice this. The prayers of the saints went up, verse 4, middle of verse 4, went up before God out of the angel's hands. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with, with the fire of the altar. 
and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder, sounds of flashes, sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. So just picture this image. These prayers have gone up before the throne of God. These seven angels are standing in a line like military soldiers and they have not made a sound. Then the silence of heaven is shattered by the sound of thunder. Can you picture that? The sound of the peals of thunder like waves crashing against a rock. The sound of heaven in its silence is shattered by peals of thunder. There, have you ever heard the thunder that makes like the back of your hair on your neck stand up because you can hear it in a distance and you know what's coming? These peals of thunder come out of the silence of heaven. This is holy thunder that is being thrown down to begin the punishment of the wicked upon earth. What a fearful, weighty magnitude of truth this is. Now, you're going to have to come back next week for the application of all this because I have, I have eight very important points of application that I do not want you to miss because they are, they are very good. I don't want us to just get all into Revelation chapter 8 and think, oh man, this stuff is weighty. This stuff is no good for me. No, there's much application to be made here um, for the believer. I think what you've seen tonight is two things. One, um, and by the way, let me point something else out to you quickly. In making application, for those of you that are studying your Bible and you want to know how to apply the text, or maybe Jim, if you're teaching the scriptures, or John, whenever you preach on a Sunday morning, um, <laughs> he will someday, you will be preaching. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I am greatly encouraged by that man. There's, there are times when he pulls the right verse at the right time to just take my heart and lift it to the heavens. And when making application, a lot of times we, we see application horizontally. Here's, here's little Deco. That's my, that's, that's me. Well, that's us. Okay. A lot of times we want God's word to tell me how to go this way. Tell me how to live laterally. Tell me how I can have a better something. That's one aspect of application, yes. When you're reading your Bible, oftentimes this is very devotionalistic. We live in a devotionalistic society. Everybody wants the 15-minute quick fix of devotion. Give me the word, let me go. But we neglect another element of application. And that's vertical. Sometimes it's this way. But the application is largely, the majority of your scripture reading is going to be Godward. The application that you derive from scripture has everything to do with who God is. Who God is. What he has done. Has done. And will do. As in the case of Revelation chapter 8. How do we apply Revelation chapter 8? We rejoice. We are happy. We rejoice. That's worship. We are happy. On the flip side, we are joyful. 
and we are content. That's all application, and that's vertical application. That is seeing who God is, having that applied to our life, and rejoicing through either worship, through, I, I would say rejoicing is also a horizontal aspect of application, because you, you're not like the world, you're actually happy. You know, you actually have a reason to live, because you know who God is. Now, we can go on and on here, but... For the most part, we so magnify the la we so magnify the horizontal aspect of application that we miss the vital, I would even say the more important aspect of application, which is Godward. How is this affecting my life to be more like Jesus Christ? How am I glorifying God because of this passage? And so Taking that to Revelation chapter 8, when we see the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, aren't you happy to know that you're not on the receiving end of this judgment? That the very judgment you deserve that looks like this has been poured out upon Jesus on your behalf. Wow. And he took it willingly. 